50-50 chance of being right. And guess, guess what? <laughs> I'm going to come over here. You like our new image? Not my new image, but our new image. So this is for our new series. So we're, we're going to continue our series, which is looking at uh, different aspects of the prophetic picture that Jenny brought to us last year. Uh, Tim started last week with a focus on prayer, and I'm going to be looking at dedication, and then over the next two weeks, we'll be looking at commitment and obedience. And uh, I think it's worth hearing the prophecy again so that we see the whole picture because we're going to be diving down into one detail of it. But you should have had uh, a, a handout and it's got the, uh, the prophecy which I'm going to read and then also this rather amazing prophetographic. So James has uh, created this for us. Tim has come up with this ridiculous name. Uh, prophetographic, <laughs> but you know, it fits, so it's fine. Uh, and that's also in there. And uh, so the idea is that you can hang on to this uh, because we'll be working through it uh, over a number of series through this year. So let me read it to you. I saw a huge tree like an oak with spreading branches and thick with green leaves. Under the tree, were people from the church with their hands lifted up as in prayer. Occasionally, someone would climb down from the tree and join those under the tree in prayer. Suddenly, a strong wind blew the leaves from off the tree, and I saw cages, like parrot cages, containing people. The cages were locked and had names on, chronic illness, mental illness, depression, fear, etc., and circling above the tree were huge black birds with flapping wings. The Lord said that a change was going to come, and he was going to blow on the church with the wind of his spirit and give us a special healing anointing. I saw locks opening on the cages and people coming down from the tree. I realized afterwards that the birds were then imprisoned in the cages, had the the people had been held captive in. The wind blew and the tree once again began to grow new leaves. The Lord said he was preparing a table for us to feast on and I saw a huge table with a great big ladle-sized spoons and we were told not to hold back but eat until we were full. The bowls had names on, the fruit of the Spirit, ministry gifts, in particular healings of all kinds, both physical and spiritual. The table had four legs, prayer, commitment, dedication, and obedience. The Lord said that people would flock to the church as they heard of the healings that would take place. And although the table legs come at the end of this picture, we're looking at them first because they represent what we can do. The Lord prepares the feast on the table, but somehow we have a part to play providing the support on which the feast will sit with prayer, obedience, commitment, and dedication. 
I think the dedication and commitment sound quite similar in meaning. So I checked a dictionary. And dedication means to set apart and consecrate to a deity or to a sacred purpose. Or to devote, devote wholly and earnestly as to some person or purpose. Whereas commitment means the act of pledging or engaging oneself. Now the danger is that we see one better than the other. You're just committed to this, but I'm dedicated. That is neither right nor helpful. I think a better way of looking at them is this. Commitment is about the what, while dedication is about the how. A measure of your commitment is the dedication with which you carry it out. Next week, Dale will look at commitment, but today we're going to focus on dedication. I want to look at the exploits of David and his mighty men, and then how that's reflected in the New Testament. David's mighty men are mentioned a couple of times in the Old Testament, uh, in 1 Chronicles and in 2 Samuel. We're going to look at 2 Samuel. So if you've got your Bibles, chapter 23 is the one you need to turn to, but you'll also find it in your notes. But first, I want to look at David's, one of David's exploits when he encountered Goliath. But instead of reading it, we're going to see it acted out by Jeddy and Zach, our two grandsons. So even if you don't know the story very well, I think you'll get the idea. So we need to have the lights out and the video to play. get the gist of it don't you <laughs> if you'd like to read the story you'll find it in 1 Samuel 17 but now let me read 2 Samuel 23 and I'm going to start from verse 8 these are the names of the mighty men whom David had Josheb Bashebeth a Tachamanite chief of the captains he was called Adino the Esnite possibly because it was a lot easier to say but also because of 800 slain by him at one time. And after him was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, the Ahite, one of the three mighty men with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there to battle. And the men of Israel had withdrawn. 
he arose and struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the people returned after him only to strip the slain. Now after him was Shammah, the son of Agi, a Hararite. And the Philistines were gathered into a troop where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the people fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot, defended it and struck the Philistines. And the Lord brought about a great victory. Then three of the 30 chief men went down and came to David in the harvest time to the cave of Adullam, while the troop of the Philistines was camping in the valley, in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, while the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. David had a craving and said, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem, which is at the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water from the well of Bethlehem, which was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Be it far from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went in jeopardy of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruah, 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 someone, was chief of the 30. And he swung his spear against 300 and killed them and had a name as well as the three. He was honored of the 30. He was, he, sorry, he was most honored of the 30. Therefore, he became their commander. However, he did not attain to the three. Then Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, the son of a valiant man of Kabzeel, he had done mighty deeds, killed the two sons of Ariel of Moab. He also went down and killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. He killed an Egyptian, an impressive man. Now the Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but he went down to him with a club and snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, did, and had a name as well as the three mighty men. He was honoured among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David appointed him over his guard. Now let me just make a, a couple of general comments. Uh, then we'll look at some particular aspects of dedication from these accounts. Did you notice there were two occasions in this passage where an individual fought tirelessly against the Philistines, but it says the Lord brought about the victory. I'll come back to that later, but I want you to make a mental note of it. The other general point is that it's quite confusing when trying to work out the 30 and the 3, and who was in which, and who played a part where, and so on. They seem to be quite fluid. And that may be because there were changes in this group. And if you compare the group with those listed in 1 Chronicles 11, you'll see that it doesn't quite match. Some of the names are the same. Some are quite different. And the differences could come about from you know, copying errors or maybe different writers wanting to emphasize different people or different activities. Ultimately, it's 
God's word and he's communicating to us. And I think it's deliberately fluid so that we don't think that this is, there's this elite group that we attain to, but accounts of ordinary people doing extraordinary things that we should aspire to. As I was preparing this message, I felt God highlight five words to focus on in relation to dedication. They are passion, initiative, misunderstood, isolated, and perseverance. I want to examine each one and find evidence in the accounts and exploits we've looked at. And you'll find in your notes that there's this passage, but also on the back, I've just listed those five points and put tick boxes and some lines to write in. Now, you can do what you like and draw pictures on it if you want to. But as I was preparing, I felt God say that these words will, uh, one, one or more of these words will impact everyone in this place this morning. And so I'm expecting something to jump out at you. And I suggest you just tick that one and maybe make a note of what it was that, that God particularly highlighted to you. It may be something I say, or it may be just something that God speaks to you. But I'm believing that God's going to speak to you this morning. Passion. Passion is a strong word and is defined as a powerful and compelling emotion. There's nothing half-hearted about passion. And if we're passionate about something or someone, they'll be at the forefront of our mind. The thing will not be forgotten. I don't mean an occasional lapse of memory, but always considered in decisions or actions. The, the sort of thing that causes people to say, I can see where your loyalties lie, our actions reflect our passion. This was true of David. He was the youngest brother sent to the battle lines to bring food for his brothers. But when he heard Goliath mocking and defying Israel, he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? His indignation is a reflection of his passion for God. And then as the story unfolds, he's brought before Saul, the king. And David says, let no man's heart fail on account of him, meaning the Goliath. I will go and fight this Philistine. He's prepared to put himself in harm's way to fulfill his commitment to the living God. We might say he puts his mouth he puts, his, he puts his money where his mouth is. It's not just about thinking or saying the right thing and then expecting someone else to act. And the great thing about David was that his passionate determination was not based on his own ability or strength. Because he said, when I was looking after the sheep and they were attacked by a lion or a bear, I fought them off. God delivered me from the lion and the bear, and he'll deliver me from this Philistine. God is both the source and the focus of his passion. It's not about thinking, I must be more passionate. 
but acting out of a life that's been transformed by a faithful God. Jesus demonstrated this perfectly. We talk about Christ's passion as being the last period of his life on earth, from when he entered Jerusalem right through to his death on the cross. Why Christ's passion? What an odd word to use. But it's from the Latin passionum, meaning suffering or enduring. This is the ultimate outworking of passionate dedication. Just as David put himself in harm's way. And we know the end of the story, but David didn't. But he, was prepared, he wasn't prepared to stand by and have this Philistine taunt the people of God. Passion isn't just about enthusiasm. Passion is about a steely determination to complete the task in hand. So what does the New Testament have to say about passion? Paul was in prison when he wrote these words to the Philippians. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, so that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and to everyone else. Somehow, Paul finds encouragement in the fact that the whole prison guard knows that he's in prison for being a Christian. There's no indication that any of them have been saved, just that they know why he's there. Given Paul's remarkable history and achievements in seeing so many saved, filled with the Spirit, churches planted, lives transformed by healing and deliverance. It's surprising he wasn't disappointed that more hadn't happened. It can't have escaped his notice that he was writing to the church in Philippi where he had been <laughs> imprisoned and saw the chief jailer and the whole of his family saved when God intervened with a miraculous earthquake. And yet, he's satisfied. Now, you might think this is a bit of a strange illustration of someone being passionate. But these verses lead on to Paul expressing probably one of the best-known verses in the New Testament, Philippians 1.21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. It's as if Paul's head and heart are in complete alignment. Or to paraphrase Hudson, Hudson Taylor, if Christ isn't Lord of all, he isn't Lord at all. Passion can be action, but it can also be trust. And here it's peace and confidence. Maybe like me, you can put people like David and Paul into a different category of Christian. They were heroes of the faith. They had a particular part to play. David, placed in the natural dynasty of Jesus and a man after God's own heart. Paul, almost single-handedly responsible for the development and growth of the early church. Of course they will appear passionate. Well, let's look at some ordinary people. You remember in Acts the furore that occurred after Peter and John had healed the lame man as they were going up to the temple. They were arrested, 
told not to speak anymore about Jesus and then released. They immediately went to their friends and reported this. And so they all prayed. And these ordinary people, friends of Peter and John, said, And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your servants may speak your word with confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. There's evidence of steely determination in those words. They weren't going to be diverted from their commitment, but wanted supernatural strengthening, realizing that their human passion wasn't enough, and they needed the power of God. This week, or last week, Liz and I had the privilege of going to a Thanksgiving service for Eunice Potter. You may never have heard of her, but we knew her mainly through New Frontiers and Stony Bible Week where she, she served on my team. Her husband, Colin, was a London city missioner and then led the church in Enfield before planting at least two other churches. They loved and cared for many people together. One of her daughters said this, in the world's eyes, my mum may not have achieved very much, but she was a faithful wife, she brought up three children, she loved Jesus, was passionate about his church, loved worship and fought for the things of God. Her son also said she was a fighter, that when he was in hospital with cancer, she would visit him and then go and sit alone in the toilets and fight for him in prayer. And her husband, Colin, quoting from Acts about King David, that when he had served the, per when he had served the purposes of God in his generation, he fell asleep. And he said, Eunice served the purposes of God in her generation, and now she's fallen asleep. It all sounds quite ordinary, doesn't it? This could be the biography of hundreds, if not thousands of women in the church. The preacher at Eunice's Thanksgiving was Toppy Colioso, who you may have heard of. He leads Jubilee Church London, which has sites in Wood Green, Ilford, Enfield, and wait for it, Zambia. The Enfield site is the church that Colin led all those years ago. Toppy said when he and his wife Kemi came over from Nigeria to London, they were befriended by a couple in Enfield who took them into their home and loved them. They taught and demonstrated the things of God and showed them the life of faith. You probably guessed that was Colin and Eunice Potter. Still quite ordinary, but an ordinary life dedicated to God, lived out with passion, has a profound effect both on individual lives and the church of God. Now, I've spent more time on passion because I think these other words that we're going to go on to look at only have relevance in this context as we demonstrate passion in our commitment for Christ. If you've had the pleasure or otherwise, of taking part in team building games, you'll know that taking initiative 
is one of the look-for traits in demonstrating leadership. A group of you, a set of tasks, possibly in competition with another group, and you have to complete it in a given time. Different people have an opinion, but generally someone will take the lead. Or perhaps at home you see something that needs doing, so rather than leaving it, you do it yourself. Perhaps some washing up, or things not put away, or a door left open, or a tap left running. Or at work or school, offering assistance or lending a hand. Or here at church when Tim says we need extra help with setup on a Sunday morning. Or Claire wants another person to serve on crash. Do you think, I can do that, an offer? Or do you wait for someone to approach you? Initiative has the sense of being proactive rather than reactive. And that was highlighted in our reading when three of David's men heard his longing for water from a well in Bethlehem. They didn't wait to be asked. In fact, from David's response when they came back, it's unlikely he would have asked. We don't know the circumstances of why David expressed this craving. Maybe the water they were drinking had been around for a few days or a few weeks and was a bit stale. But we can imagine the men saying to each other, shall we go and get some water for David? What, break into the Philistine camp? Great idea, come on, we'll be back before morning. It was about 13 miles from Adullam to Bethlehem. So maybe four hours to walk, although this would have been over rough terrain, but they would be fit. They've still got to break into an enemy stronghold, draw water from a well, get out with be- without being discovered, and then make their way back. A marathon distance and a marathon achievement. And all because their leader had a craving? Jesus told a story once in answer to the question, who is my neighbor, about someone showing initiative. The Good Samaritan helped the man who had been mugged while two others passed by. Jesus said to the lawyer who'd asked the question, who proved to be a neighbor to the man who was mugged? He replied, well, the one who showed mercy. So simply by taking initiative and showing mercy to a neighbor, we demonstrate our dedication to Jesus. While I was literally, while I was writing this section of my notes, I looked out the window at home and noticed our neighbor opposite was unloading shopping from her car. And during the week, I'd seen that her husband's car wasn't there. So I thought maybe he might be away. I hadn't done anything about it except think that maybe I should. So hoping for a really good illustration, <laughs> I went across and found out that James was away on a week for a week on a course and I offered our, our help to Kat if there was anything that she needed. Now if I was Quincy, she would be signed up for Alpha by now <laughs> or possibly already responded to the gospel. In fact, I'm thinking of getting one of those bands made that says WWQD. What what would Quincy do? But showing mercy 
or being kind or generous or helpful. It's not about the outcome. It's just about doing it and taking the initiative. And of course, of course we want a good outcome. But sometimes our dedication, our passion, our initiatives don't always go the way we expect. And they, or we, are misunderstood. David's three mighty men may have felt misunderstood when David refused to drink the water that they had risked their lives to bring him. They demonstrated their dedication to him and he refused to drink, pouring the water away. But maybe they misunderstood David because he poured it out to the Lord, which probably means as a sacrifice. There was a drink offering outlined in Exodus, but that should have been good wine. So perhaps he considered it so highly that it was worthy of being considered as valuable as a fine wine. Now we don't know the chronology of these stories in these historical books like Chronicles and Samuel, but in the very next chapter in 2 Samuel, David's in a pickle again before the Lord. And he's offered the opportunity to make a sacrifice using animals, wheat, and the threshing floor of a fellow Israelite. And he says, I must pay for it because I will not offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God, which cost me nothing. Now I can imagine his men thinking, hang on, you were willing enough to use the water we gave you as an offering. It didn't cost you anything. The thing is, we don't know what went on in their heads. But I do know that when you step out for God, the opportunities for misunderstanding abound. When the prodigal son finally comes to his senses and returns home, what happens? His brother won't enter the house and has a barney with his dad. Why? Because he's misunderstood both his brother and his father. It may only be me, but I have definitely had this thought go through my head. Who do you think you are? Because I've misunderstood that person's motivation for doing something. I remember years ago coming into church with my friends, chatting away, and I turned around and there's Pauline, head in hands, praying. You see, for her, setting her spirit right with God in prayer before a church service was more important than talking even to me. You may have similar experiences at work, at home, at college or school when you say you go to church. Or worse still, you mention the name of Jesus. You can be misunderstood. And that can lead to you being, or at least feeling, isolated. Remember the dictionary definition of dedication? To set apart and consecrate to a deity or to a sacred purpose. As believers, we are supernaturally separate since we belong to a different kingdom. But when we pursue holiness, which means to be set apart, when we're dedicated to God or to the church, we can find ourselves feeling isolated from other believers 
by the very nature of what we do or possibly don't do. A couple of David's men would have felt the same way. Shammar defended a plot of land full of lentils. Now, I'm not a great fan of lentils, and I doubt Shammar went to all that trouble just because he liked them. We don't know the reason, but we do know he was on his own, isolated, but he fought on regardless. What about Benaiah? He killed a lion in the middle of a pit on a snowy day. That verse was given to one of uh, my fellow college students when I was at college for the preaching class. And when he groaned, the lecturer, Jeff, said, here are your three points. The worst of enemies in the worst of locations in the worst of circumstances. I'm not sure you can get any more isolated than with a fierce enemy on your own. Where should we go in the New Testament to see isolation? I, I could have illustrated all of these points by looking at Jesus. But perhaps this one is the most appropriate. On the cross, Jesus was isolated from his people, his friends, his family, and ultimately his heavenly father. Why? Because he was dedicated to the purposes of God. He was passionate about restoring us to the Father and building his church. And he persevered until it was done. We read about Eliezer who struck the Philistines until his hand was weary and clung to the sword. Shammar kept fighting until the whole troop was defeated. The three men completed a marathon to bring David a drink of water. Keeping going is a key aspect of dedication. It doesn't necessarily mean doing the same thing forever, but it might do. That depends what God puts on your heart to do. Paul's calling was to the Gentiles, and he pursued that calling in lots of different places in lots of different ways, but he kept going. How do we do that? You may be tempted to try harder, but that is not the answer. With the illustrations I've referred to, there's been the answer. David said, when I was looking after the sheep and they were attacked by a bear or a lion, I fought them off. God delivered me from the lion and the bear and he'll deliver me from this Philistine. Eliezer and Shammar fought the battle, but the Lord brought about a great victory. When Peter and John's friends prayed, what happened? The place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. We may want to be more dedicated, to be more passionate, to take more initiative, to avoid misunderstanding, to cope better with isolation, to keep persevering. And the only way is in the power and anointing of the Holy Spirit. To close, 
I want to read some of the names of these amazing, mighty people. And as I do so, I want you to think these are just ordinary people doing extraordinary things by the power of God. Asahel, the brother of Johab, was among the 30. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah, the Haradite. Elikar, the Haradite. Elez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh, the Tekoite. Tim, son of Andy from Manchester. Sophie, daughter of Penelope from Croydon. Graham, son of Bill from Edinburgh. Claudine, daughter of Min from Red Hill. You see, we're all ordinary people who can be dedicated to God and do extraordinary things in the power of his spirit.